Mark chapter 6 is where we have been marching our way through. I invite you to turn in your Bible there, Mark 6. Last week, we kind of really camped out with a lot of those apologetics affirmations, and so there was an awful lot of explanation. And I don't even have my bell handy here today, so we're going to be diving into a much more application-oriented side of this specific water-walking incident. Uh, It's a wrestling match in pastor's preparation times, trying to find the right balance there. And I appreciate so much of what you guys provide, including good positive feedback, because it helps me know if we're connecting or not. And I've gotten some very helpful feedback, and thank you for that. I am absolutely confident that God who inspired this word has a word for us today through his Holy Spirit, and that it's a trustworthy word. And so I invite you to approach it with that reverence that I think the word deserves. And just as an approach question, let me ask you this. How do you think we would measure success? A lot of people, if you were to kind of throw out a little three-by-five card and they would fill some things out and turn it back in again, they would probably come back with things like a 4.0 GPA in school or a larger salary or a promotion at work or a greater number of friends, or maybe a prestigious title so I can have that plastic thing, a nameplate on my desk. There are many measures of success, and most of those that we tend to think of, I think would probably come at us from the world's perspective. But we're finding out in this water walking incident that Jesus is constantly trying to show and tell his disciples that there's a different value system in the kingdom than there is in the world. And so he's redefining success for them. And as we are Christ followers, he's redefining success for us. And I don't know if you've struggled with this the way I have, but even pastors who are paid to be good, you're, you're all just good for nothing, but, <laughs> but even pastors, even pastors who've been studying the Bible for years and, and we preach it all the time, There are lots of voices competing for our attention, and a lot of the stuff in the world would try to get us to change what we're doing so that we could appear successful. I'll get to that in a minute because we're going to talk about some of those applications. So I think it's great for us to continue to be reminded as we look into what Jesus teaches about what real success looks like as a kingdom citizen and not a citizen of the world. Are you tracking with me on that one? If you are, say, I'm tracking. Okay, thank you. I sensed a modicum of excitability there. All right. Jesus is teaching us kingdom success, and we're going to start. We're kind of picking up where we left off. Mark 6.30, the apostles had gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So we saw that. They were doing sort of their uh, debrief session, so to speak. They had preached about the coming kingdom. They had healed the sick. They had cast out demons. And they came back probably saying, Jesus, you should have seen it. We were in this one village and this guy came out and oh man, it was so cool. And they were talking through all that. I wish we had had sort of a videotape of that session. But this is all we've got. We just have the summary version saying that they had given their debrief to him. But immediately after that, Jesus said, let's go somewhere quiet. Because I have a feeling Jesus knows about 
teachable opportunities. He knows that this is a teachable moment and he's going to want to try to teach them in how he's responding to their excitement about what they saw happening. But they weren't able to do that because everybody kept flocking to where Jesus was. So where they were going, people were seeing them ahead of time because they were cutting partway across the lake. It's not terribly far across, only eight miles at the widest part. So if they're just coming from a couple of towns over, people could see it and run around and get in front of them, which is what they did. So he sees them, has compassion on them because they are like a sheep without a shepherd, and he teaches them more things. And then the disciples say, Jesus, you need to send them to Burger King. We don't have enough money. There's no way we can feed this many people. And he goes, why don't you feed them? And that's where he starts to give them a lesson that when we have Jesus with us, he's the one who creates the miracle, but he wants us to participate in his redemptive work on earth. So that's where we are picking us up to today. So would you think that after feeding the 5,000 that the disciples would say, I'm putting that on my list of successes. If you were to use today's terminology, they'd say, Jesus, that was a win. 5,000 men plus their family members Oh my goodness, we had them sit, seated on the grassy hillside in groups of 50 or 100, and we had enough left over for each of us to have a big basket full of food. How cool is that? That is a win, Jesus. Does Jesus teach them that by saying, yes, that's what we're about? No, he makes them go away. Another lesson's coming. Immediately after feeding the 5,000, this is in verse 45, Jesus made his disciples. He compelled his disciples to get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. We talked about that a lot last week. While he dismissed the crowd. That would have been no easy task because the crowd was really after his attention. And we'll see in a different gospel. They wanted even more from Jesus than it shows in Mark. And after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Hmm. Now, have you ever had somebody really compel you to do something, even though your heart wasn't in it? You really didn't want to do it, but you felt like they were compelling you to do that? I was a young lad, and I visited my grandfather, Dadad, we called him. He looked like Mark Twain, and he was an old cowboy, and he had a big old scar on his upper lip, and he just, you know, he's that kind of guy. And he's going to take us fishing in the tank. Now, for those of you who are not from the Southwest, a tank is not like a metal tank. It's a hollowed out place in the ground. And because it holds water, it's just clay, they call it a tank. That's just a Southwesternism. So we were going to go bass fishing at the tank. None of those bluegills. We wanted the bass, baby. And he said, so I got these little frogs because they make great bass bait. The frogs love these delicacies. And they were only about as big as... An, maybe an inch in length, little tree frog. But he was trying to compel me to put the hook in a certain way, and I won't say it because it's too gross. There was a certain way that you could fix the hook in that frog so that it wouldn't come back off easily if a bass started to try to suck the bait off of there. And I didn't want to do that because I thought that was really sick. But he compelled me, and he says, Are you going to be a sissy? <laughs> You know, sometimes we need motivation, and sometimes people say that. Basically, what he said was, suck it up, buttercup. You got to do, if you're going to catch a fish, you got to learn how to bait the hook. And that was a lesson. It was like, okay, if you're going to participate in this thing, there's some things that are necessary, and you have to learn these skills, and you have to get past your heebie-jeebies and just do it. So I felt that there was a compelling aspect to what he was doing. And I sensed the same word at work here with Mark because Jesus literally had to make them get in the boat. Now, why would that be? 
Why would Jesus send them on ahead and why would he have to compel them to do that? Well, that's a good question because we can have good observation and then we need to ask why questions. Those are some of the good questions to get to the interpretation of a scripture. And so we're asking, why is that? Why would he have to make them go to the other side? Well, look at John 6, 14. You can hang on to uh, Mark or keep a tab open or whatever you're doing. Verse 14 of John, John 6. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, referring again to feeding of the 5,000 plus, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. I spent a lot of time on that last week. If you weren't here, please go back and watch that episode. It's a prerequisite. <laughs> and then you go on ahead to verse 15. He says, Jesus, knowing that they, now who is they there? It's the crowd knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountainside to pray. Big piece of information there. These people saw what Jesus had done. They're looking for a leader, and they're thinking, oh boy, he ticks all the boxes for us. If we get hungry, he multiplies the bread and the fish. He'll feed us. There's no more hunger in this land. He's powerful enough that if he can do stuff like that, he could clearly easily get an army and create a really effective insurrection and go up against the Roman government, and bang, he's going to be the new leader, and he can lead the people the way we want to be led. But does Jesus want to be made king? Absolutely not. He is not having any of that. And I suspect, I don't know this for sure, but I suspect that the apostles, based on what we're seeing in some of their reactions to things early in Jesus' ministry, they might have been easily swayed by the crowd, and they too might have been saying, Jesus, you've got a ready-made audience here. I mean, you'd have to pay a lot of money for this kind of advertising, and we didn't pay a thing. These people are on your side. Now's the time you need to leverage this event and turn it into something bigger. This is the time when you could really make a killing, politically speaking. You got him in the palm of your hand, Lord, and you want us to go to the other side of the lake? You're going to go up and pray somewhere? You're crazy. God, are you sure you know what you're doing? Doesn't it sound like what we do sometimes with the Lord? Now that's my paraphrased of what I think might have been going on in the apostles. That's a, an inspired imagination at work. We don't see that happening. But I suspect that if we see people like Peter at one point saying, Jesus, there's got to be a better way, that maybe they were thinking things like that. Because if the people all wanted to make Jesus king by force, Jesus wasn't having any part of that. I watched uh, an episode of Undercover Boss not too long ago. It's been a while since I'd seen some of those, and some of them popped up on YouTube, and I watched them because you could watch them in five-minute segments, which makes it good for my ADD lifestyle. <laughs> and one of the guys that was in a chain of burger joints was dressed up. They gave him a prosthetic nose. He had some goofy-looking glasses and stuff, and he's trying to be the new trainee, and they're teaching him how to cook burgers correctly and stuff, and he was trying to undercover what was going on inside the store that was making it dysfunctional? And I'll tell you what was making this one dysfunctional. It was the manager. Because <laughs> this manager was just demeaning and cruel and had emotional abuse, as far as I was concerned, about the way he was treating these really good employees who were trying hard to do a good job. In fact, one of them almost made me cry because this young man was doing such good work with pride 
And the guy who was the trainee, who's actually the CEO of the company, says, how come you take such pride in what you do? You seem to really get into this stuff. And he goes, I love cooking. I just, I love culinary arts. And I know this is just a burger joint, but I'm hoping that I'll learn more about cooking. And I want to do the best I can for the customers. I want to get it right. And he said, this guy's passionate about his job. That same kid who was passionate about his job was being told, you need to go out and pick up the parking lot again and take this stuff out to the trash. Right in the middle of doing something important for the customers. And he was using demeaning terminologies as he was doing that. So finally, that went on just long enough that the CEO had had enough. He just about blew his stack. And normally in that show, they wait until they bring the people back and then they have the big reveal and the guy walks in and they say, does this guy look familiar to you? And they go, hmm, you look a little bit familiar. Oh, no. You're the boss. I mean, the boss boss. You're the CEO. But this time, he said, I had to reveal my identity too quickly because I just couldn't wait. So it shows the guy pulling the manager out into the parking lot and just ripped him. He said, why would I ever want to come and work for a guy like you? the way you're treating these people. He said, we're going to have to shut this store down. It is so dysfunctional. We have to stop it right now. Go in and tell the employees to come out here. We're going to have a meeting. Turn off the lights. Put the we're closed sign out on the front. We're done. Whoa. And he did. And he brought everybody out. And the employees recognized who he was when he revealed his identity. And they were all fearing for their jobs. And he said, no panic, anybody. You're still getting paid. You all still have jobs. But clearly, we have not done our job well in training. And we need to take you right back to school, right back to square one, because one of the values of our company, which clearly we have not trained you in, is that we have to treat everybody with respect. Not just the customers, but everybody, including the employees. And if we haven't done our job training right, then we need to start over, and we're going to do that for you right now. So they did. And it turned things around. Then, of course, they have the make-you-cry moment at the end, where they have the CEO sitting just one-on-one with that good employee. And he said, I understand from one of the fellow employees that you actually take some of your money home. Is that true? And he goes, well, yes, sir. He says, are you living with your mom? He said, I am. And she's had some medical expenses, so I'm trying to help out. So he said, well, our company is going to give you $15,000 to help with these expenses. And, you know, and you're just going, (laughs) it's a beautiful moment. Because the one who needs to get rewarded gets rewarded. And there's justice. And you feel like, oh, this is the way I wish leadership courses could be done. And I sense that's what Jesus is doing with the disciples. He's not undercover. I mean, he's just right out there. He says, I am who I am. But he's showing that there's a different way to do things than the world has been trying to force them into thinking. And he keeps giving them lessons about that. So I think it's possible for us to be continually steeping ourselves in kingdom principles and redefining success so that we can look like the kind of kingdom Jesus wants us to look like. Here's a lesson for us. It's really easy for us, and we can see this based on what we see all through the New Testament, but especially with these disciples and the crowd. It's easy for us to become overzealous about things that we think are really important. I mean, we saw that with Peter. Put your sword away, Peter. I've got this. Heal Malchus's ear. We can get overzealous about stuff, and we can elevate certain things that we think the world would say is a success, is a win, but we're elevating it above the kingdom principles. 
And Jesus is always trying to reestablish the kingdom principle for, for us. And one of the things he reminds his disciples is that he's not about numbers, he's about mission. He is on mission. And that means that we're being, being reminded too. We should be on mission with him, doing the same things he's asking them to do. So our main mission as Jesus followers is to be disciples and to make disciples. That's just boiling it down. Being a disciple is a process. We are saved when we take that step of faith and we say, God, I want to start walking with you. That's that moment of conversion. But the transformation that takes place, that sanctification, takes a lifetime. It's daily. It's a daily walk. And by doing that, the more we get to be like him, the more we can reveal him to other people so that they can be drawn to the same God that we serve so that hopefully they too will take that step of faith and start the same process. That's it. Be disciples, make disciples. And I think we should remind ourselves, as Jesus reminds the apostles, they're disciples, but they're sort of transitioning into becoming apostles by doing the things he's asking them to do. The kingdom is counter cultural now we're not subcultural we know that we have subcultures among us you know there are instrumental musicians and then there are vocalists there are some people who used to get upset because they would say with you vocalists and then the musicians would you come in and the vocalists would say we're musicians too or there's football players and there's soccer players and they, they each have their subcultural group. There's dance and there's drama and, you know, there are all these different subcultures, but they each kind of have their tribe. But the kingdom of God is not just a subculture. We're not just one of several subcultures. We are supposed to be counter-cultural. What does that mean? That means that we're supposed to be influencing those around us rather than being influenced by them. We're not supposed to be the ones being changed by the culture. We're supposed to change the culture. And Jesus constantly kept doing that. He ran away from the opportunities to be like the world so that he could change the culture, even if it meant shrinking the number of disciples in order to do it. He kept doing that again and again. Who does that? What kind of management system tells you that the best kind of growth is to keep shrinking your team? But Jesus did that. So his values are counter-cultural. It's like a, a football coach when Jesus is trying to say, suck it up, buttercup. I've got a, a football analogy because, David, this one's for you, buddy. Um, Jesus had told some of these folks one time that you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And he made it clear later that this was metaphoric. This was a hyperbole and it was spiritual. But some people were really grossed out by that. They were wigged out. They weren't sure how to accept that kind of teaching. And then he basically says, suck it up, buttercup. When people ask him about it, he said, didn't I remind you that only the only people who can come to me are the people who come because God enables them to do that. So I'm involved in all of this stuff. And if you don't get what I'm talking about, then just suck it up. That's a very loose paraphrase. But that's in John chapter six. If you'll read through that, it's pretty interesting. And then finally, he gets to the point, the point where he says, all right, I've already told you this but I'm going to tell it to you again. No one can come to me unless the Father draws them, and then he will stand with them on the last day. But some people, it says, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him after that. 
When he got real about his expectations, he wasn't lowering the bar for the kingdom and saying, oh, we're going to loosen our standards so that more people can get in. He says, no, I'm going to raise the bar. You've got to understand that this is a kingdom and we are countercultural and you can't sneak in under the bar. This is the way we have to do it, folks. And it's all or nothing. You embrace me, you eat all of me, just as we see in the communion. Eat all of this. You take all of me or you take none of me. It's like that football coach, first day of practice. We used to get it because I was in marching band instead of football. We got the same thing, but through our band director. And he says, guys, huddle up. You should know this is going to be hard work. And you're going to sweat, and you're not going to like the amount of running we have to do, but you've got to get in shape, and you're going to have to learn some self-discipline, and you're not going to like that either. And you may go home, and you may cry on your pillow tonight because you say, my body hurts. I can't keep doing this day after day. He said, but that's what it's going to take if we're going to develop a real team mentality, and it's got to be the other guy first. You're doing this for your teammates, not just for yourself. Is that clear? Yes, coach. Is that clear? Yes, coach. I can't hear you. So they do all that stuff, and then what happens? The next day, people start grumbling. They're off in the little huddle groups. This coach is so bad. And then the coach brings them back in and says, didn't I tell you? That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Didn't I tell you this already, folks? And they go, well, yeah, I guess so. And finally, some of them just left. Like some people on about the third or fourth day of football practice, they get up and they walk out and they quit the team. That's what was happening here. A lot of these followers of Jesus, this would be not just the 12. This is after they sent out the 72. So there are quite a number of people starting to follow him, but it says many of them just walked away because they didn't want to go through that thing and to say, okay, yeah, I see that you have your standards of the kingdom and they're not the same as the world's standards, but what you offer is still so much better than the world that I'm willing to go by your standards. And that's what Jesus says for us. He confounds the wisdom of the world by continually shrinking his team. Incidentally, we can grow stronger as we grow smaller, which is why I'm excited that we're going to the new small groups as our GEs. I am excited to see what God's going to do through that because I've been a part of some amazing small groups, and they're transformational. That's where we really get to start seeing discipleship happen because we're in relationship long enough with one another to start tackling the real issues and to getting under the surface that we just don't have time to one hour a week on Sunday mornings. Good times, but I think that God can do some really transformational stuff with that. So I urge you, I urge you, let's make this a part of our church's DNA. Let's be a part of that because you're going to start to sense that God's doing something on a microcosmic scale that cannot be done on a larger scale. So how does Luke record this in Luke 14? Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Can you imagine why people would be offended? Hate's a strong word, Lord. You're not being very Christ-like. <laughs> Isn't that what we say? If he starts to overturn the, the money changers' tables in the temple, well, that's not very Christ-like. He's Christ. He's establishing the mark. He's raising the bar, and he's saying, look, I'm saying comparatively, if you don't put the kingdom principles at the very highest part of your ladder in priorities, then you don't get it. You don't understand what the kingdom is about. And so he's raising the bar. And that's 
when we start going about these hard sayings of Jesus, we learn something about Jesus. He is not about numbers. He's on mission. Man, that's vital. We pastors need to keep doing that. We remind ourselves too, the pastors that I know in this area, we remind ourselves we should not be swayed by a crowd into what we think success looks like. We want to be swayed by Jesus and by His words in the Word of God and do things the kingdom way, even if it means He's shrinking our numbers. That's what's going to bring kingdom growth. And I believe that. We've been living it, quite frankly. So, Jesus' miracle on the lake. We're finally getting... It's been, he's been going like this the whole time now for about almost two hours of teaching, and he's just about finally ready to walk on the water. But here we go. Verses 47 and 48 of Mark 6. Later that night, which means he's been on the mountain quite a while now, and he sends them out on purpose, knowing that that's when the storms can come up. Remember that. The boat was in the middle of the lake. They weren't near the shore. They were in the middle. They'd been straining. He was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, or during the third watch of the night, it could be anywhere between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., according to the Roman calendar and stuff. And he came walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. And I don't think he was passing them by like, I don't care about you, I'm just on my way to the other side. I think he was teaching them on purpose, so we can kind of get wigged out by some of that. But he was about to go near them. And then there's this mental picture for us of these disciples. And they think they see something, and they're scared spitless. Because Jesus is still confounding them by doing things they still haven't seen yet. This is still brand new to them. A few years ago, this is really funny stuff. I, I dug into this just a little bit because I still hear people trying to demythologize miracles in the Bible. And there was a big push to that. And these liberal scholars were all trying to find a way to essentially do away with miracles in the Bible because they just couldn't abide by that because the laws of physics are inviolable. You can't violate the laws of physics. Well, you can if you made them. You know, you, you can step outside the laws that you have established. If you're the creator, you can go outside of creation to do something on purpose, and this is what they do. So here's one of the guys that actually wrote this. I can't believe he did. He says, well, we think that what actually happened there was Jesus was creating the illusion of walking on water because he was just walking on a sandbar. Now, I'm here to tell you, Joy and I have been on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, we can see how steeply the banks are, how deep it is, 141 feet in the middle of the lake. Where were they, according to the scripture, in the middle of the lake? They were not near the edge where there was any kind of shallowness. There was no sandbar. But people are sometimes quicker to grasp some ludicrous potential explanation rather than to have to admit to themselves, God is capable of stepping outside of his own creation and to, he can do a miracle. And so we need to accept that. There are no sandbars in the middle of the lake. These guys were fishermen. They knew what the lake was like. They would have known where the sandbars were too. So we have to throw that one right out. So here's the main point. The main point of Jesus walking on the water was that he is Lord over creation. He wanted to do something again to show them that he's not just a charismatic teacher. He's not just somebody who's influenced by the world and can be a leader in the world's eyes or in the world's ways. He's God. He's God incarnate. He's Jesus Christ. And there is no other like him ever. 
some people walk away because they just won't accept that Jesus is God incarnate and capable of miracles. And you can hear Jesus' words to the disciples when people are starting to walk away. And he'd say, well, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. So until people open themselves up to that drawing of God and he's knocking at heart's doors, then there's nothing I can do because there is free will and they can shut me out if they want. So success in our effort to make disciples is not the world's measures of success. We can't argue somebody into the kingdom. If we win an argument, what have we won? We probably burned a bridge. But if we can love people into the kingdom the way Jesus did and lay our lives down for other people the way Jesus did, if we ache to see them come into the kingdom so that they can experience what we're experiencing, then it's going to look like kingdom principles and not like the world's principles. Think of this way. I, I like uh, this one teacher on the internet, and uh, he gave this analogy. And I think I read it in a book by Philip Yancey years ago. He used a similar analogy that we are all in kind of a big fish tank. Let's think of the world as a big fish tank. And there had to have been some intelligent designer to design this fish tank. But every now and then things happen that confound us. and We, we can't quite explain it because suddenly this mysterious food just drops from the sky into the water and sinks down to where we are. And we go, whoa, what is that? And we can't quite de describe it or explain it. And so we're kind of left wondering what's going on. So what does God do? Well, he becomes a fish so that he can learn fish language and whatever they, I, I don't know what fish sounds like. And so he can talk our language and so he can explain who he is and why he made this. And, and the why has to do just the why of purpose, not the why how, which is physics and stuff, but the why of purpose. I made this because I care about you. That's why I keep feeding you. That's why I give you air in your lungs. And we sing about that. Even that is an expression of praise. I've given all of this for you because I care about you. And that's what God does through Jesus. And he's continuing to show the disciples that that's what God does for us. Now, here's a great quote. I like this from a guy named Mike Winger. The laws of nature create the necessary precondition for miracles. I like that. Because even engineers can get behind this concept. Many of them have, in fact. If the laws of nature didn't behave in a certain way most of the time, then you wouldn't even notice if God did something outside them. Okay? So we have to have this thing that's established as normal so that when God does something abnormal, we recognize, ooh, that's got to be from God. If apples somehow fell up from the ground as you walked by and you had to grab them before they reattached themselves to the tree, just randomly, every now and then that happened, for one thing, it'd be really cool. <laughs> or if Bugs Bunny just hopped out around behind your house on your way to your car one day and said, yeah, what's up, Doc? And that happened every now and then, or SpongeBob SquarePants or something. Or if the sun just periodically, for no apparent reason, started going from the opposite side of the earth, and you're used to looking out a specific window, it rises in the east and it goes down in the west, but suddenly it rises in the west and goes down in the east, you'd be going, okay, well, that's so abnormal that it's normal. You know, the unusual would be usual, and so we wouldn't even notice if God did something weird. But because we have all this established order that God put into place because He is the Creator, then certainly God can transcend His own creation 
for the purpose of revealing himself to us, which is exactly what he's doing, and that's what he's doing by Jesus walking in the water. Can I get an amen? All right. The definition of a miracle is this. That's the very definition of a miracle. A surprising and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency, a.k.a. God. That is a miracle. So for a scientist to say, yes, Christians are not setting aside the laws of physics. We don't think they're bunk. I have to live with the laws of physics every day of my life. I appreciate them very much. And yet, we do also, at the same time, believe we can hold these things together without being contradictory that the God who created those things is capable of miracles. And the reason I know that is because I've experienced some of them. My own daughter is one of them. Pronounced dead by a doctor, a reputable doctor, the chief of obstetrics at U of M. A friend of ours, a Christian, a believer, who said, there's no heartbeat. Here she is. Folks, that's a miracle. How can you describe some of these things without saying there has to be a God? And he's got to be God who's transcending the laws of physics. I can't describe it any other way. So that's what God does. And he's doing it through this walking on the water. And here's a lesson for us. We saw how Jesus sent the disciples into the boat across the lake, which means sometimes I think it's possible for him to send us into situations that are really tough so that we can learn more about him and he can continue to grow our character so that we have to call out to him, so that we have to say, oh God, what am I missing? Have I not been honoring you? Have I not been glorifying you to other people? If so, how can I start doing that? I want to honor you in front of these other people so they can clearly see you because I want to be a disciple who's making disciples. And I think to boil it right down into simplicity, the main lesson that we learn from Jesus walking on the water to those disciples, they just needed to learn to trust Him. Do we need to keep learning that lesson? Because we can. We can trust Him even in circumstances that seem way over our head and that are really stormy at times. The question is, will we trust him? And then when he does speak to us, will we obey by doing what he is compelling us to do? Let's pray. Father, you've given us some tough stuff to chew on in this passage. And yet we also see so much evidence that everything that you do is always motivated, motivated by your love for us, as it was for the disciples who are becoming apostles. Please, Lord, I'm asking you to pour yourself out through your Spirit in a way that would cause us to want to glorify you to others by connecting with you, by recognizing that there are kingdom standards and they're not the same as the world standards. Lord, we're desperate for that. We need that. And I'm desperate for other people to see the kingdom being expressed through your people so that they will be drawn by you into that loving relationship that we can experience and that they can experience with us as we grow together as disciples together. Thank you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.